Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hope all of you have had a good start to your week. Hard to believe that we are in the first uh, full week of June. And it wasn't that long ago that I was on the air with you all last. And here we are discussing uh, Shays' Rebellion, the American Revolution's Final Battle by Leonard L. Richards. The previous time I was with you all, we were discussing the origins of defiance. We are now into the second part, or let alone, I should say, part two of two to chapter one, Defiance. You know, we learned a lot about what defiance meant, and we also uh, discussed its origins with this um, conflict in Massachusetts. So what else can we um, learn about defiance that will uh, give us a better understanding of not just the term itself, but a broader picture of how uh, Massachusetts will be conti- will continuously be impacted by this um, affair. And we must remind ourselves that rebellious activities don't just happen overnight. They come over time, especially as we learned uh, previously how the Massachusetts legislature always kept saying, most notably to those in the western part of the state, oh, just wait till next year and we'll address these concerns. Well, the concerns, or let alone matters, never got addressed. And the longer they got put aside, the more um, upset, the more um, dissatisfied that people in general became especially those who decided that it was best to take up arms against uh, not just so much their local uh, jurisdictions being that of their county courthouse, but how about that with um, against the state? So, you know, rebellious activity is not uh, confined to just one uh, level. It starts out on the 101 playing field, but if it goes unchecked where those who feel oppressed have not had their voices properly heard, then the greater the likelihood that they will expand beyond 101 and go to um, other extreme measures to get their word out. So, my first uh, question to you all is the following. How many courts in Massachusetts were closed by rebel forces between August to December 1786. How many closed in western Massachusetts? And did any courts close north and south of Boston? So let's keep in mind, folks, that this problem isn't confined to just western Massachusetts, although the majority of the problems are confined to the western part of the state, but there are um, other areas in Massachusetts that are well east of Boston that are feeling the same kind of uh, impact, not just so much perhaps with their voices not being heard, but how um, the legislature has adopted um, measures that only benefit one group of people but leave the rest of um, the greater society um, out of the loop. So the the first part to the question given that it was how many courts in Massachusetts were closed by rebel forces between August to December of 1786, your choices are the following. Was it, is it choice A, four? Is it choice B, 
8, choice C, 6. The answer is the following, choice C. Six courts were closed between August and December of 1786. And how many closed in the western part of the state? Is the answer four or is the answer three? The answer is four. The court, the four courts that closed in western Massachusetts were the following. Worcester, being 50 miles west of Boston. Springfield, Northampton, and Great Barrington. Springfield, Northampton, and Great Barrington are much further uh, west of Worcester. Springfield is actually closer to the Massachusetts-Connecticut line. As for Northampton and Great Barrington, they lie between the Massachusetts-Connecticut and New York State lines. So that's a whole huge swath of territory right there for four, for these four courts to be closed, not just so much territory in terms of land, but overall um, the overall scope of how big western Massachusetts is. I've, you know, I mentioned to you all that in modern-day times the western part of the state is... Um, placed into three regions, um, and when you have three regions that make up greater western Massachusetts, yes, that is going to um, cater to a broad population, considering that at this time in 1786, 85% of the state's population lives well west of Boston. As for the uh, final part to this uh, leadoff question, there is one court north of Boston, believe it or not, in Concord. Concord, of all places where shots were heard round the world 11 years earlier, the court in Concord has closed? And then the other one being south of Boston in Taunton, uh, which is just west of Seekonk. So, four out of the six being closed in the west, uh, you do the math, that's two-thirds, 67%. The courts uh, east of uh, western Massachusetts... Two out of six, that's uh, one-third, 33%. So, yes, the, the, um, the, the issues are more prone to be in the West, but that's not to say that um, east of uh, Worcester there, are, there is uh, turmoil as well. Well, here's our next question for you all. Given the state... Given um, the state... Of cur- given the state's current militia situation, that is Massachusetts' current militia situation, did other states fare better with militia turnout when it came to defending the courts? You know, folks, if six courts in Massachusetts have been closed over a um, four-month span, I think that ought to rate, or four to five month span, I think that ought to raise a bunch of red flags. If any more than six courts close, to me, I, I would see that as being anarchy. I would see that, I mean, we already are seeing some anarchy as it is, but if more than six courts close, I don't even see how a judicial system alone in Massachusetts can function, period. So I'm sure most of you are wondering. Are there any other states that are faring better with militia turnout when it's when it comes to defending the courts? Yes. There's one in particular, a neighboring state of Massachusetts to the north, New Hampshire. 
What is New Hampshire doing differently that Massachusetts isn't doing? I'll give you a good example of a situation that came about. There was a particular situation in New Hampshire, and at the time the capital of the uh, Granite State was Exeter in 1786, but 200 men had assembled around the state house in Exeter. Obviously, these 200 men were not happy with the policies of Governor John Sullivan. Governor Sullivan knows that the, that the situation is not good, but he takes bold, swift action upon the complaints received. He, promised, he promises swift action and once he says this, the dissidents disperse. They leave. Okay? They, they believe what he's going to say. Interesting enough, Governor Sullivan goes about getting the militia and companies of light horsemen to respond. And they go about arresting 40 of the 200 protesters. And arresting these 40 men resulted in banning all further conventions. However, Governor Sullivan, although his actions seemed radical, and his actions by some could, have, could be seen as uh, too, um, what we would call too unnecessary, after all, could these 200 men have been peacefully demonstrating their objections? Perhaps. But at the same time, we really don't know because they're really uh, because Leonard Richards uh, was not able to provide us with an accurate, with a more accurate, detailed um, description of this situation. Although what he does provide is valid, is valid and relevant, considering that Governor Sullivan was able to turn to the legislature for approval in getting the light horsemen and militia bands to come together to arrest these 40 protesters. All, and here's the thing, folks. What, what's the catch here? True or false, are the dissidents in Massachusetts the majority or the minority? The answer is obvious. They're in the majority. True or false, are the dissidents in New Hampshire the opposite? True. The dissidents in, in New Hampshire are the, in the minority. You've got over a thousand men at best in Massachusetts who are very uh, disgruntled. Well over a thousand, let's put it that way for 101 starters. You've got that many in uh, Massachusetts who are very unhappy, and rightfully so. But we also should keep in mind that the population of New Hampshire is not the same as it is in Massachusetts. So the smaller the protesters and the smaller the dissidents... Perhaps the greater the support that a governor like Governor John Sullivan's going to uh, receive from the greater community in his state. And besides getting support from the legislature, who else could Governor Sullivan had gotten, could have received support from? And he got it. How about the merchants? How about the shopkeepers to coastal militia units? When uh, my wife and I were in... Uh, historic Jamestown, um, Virginia, uh, this uh, past uh, weekend, we learned something uh, very uh, significant. Those who uh, controlled the cities were uh, merchants. 
those who had lots of money, they, they would have been a select few merchant families in the greater in the greater country of England, most notably along the seaports, they would have been the ones running the cities. So after all, folks, when we think of New Hampshire and its coast, I, I think of Portsmouth. I think of um, I think of uh, Portsmouth and the greater uh, communities uh, that are just on the outskirts. After all, um, my wife's maternal grandfather hailed um, from around the Portsmouth, uh, New Hampshire area. So, um, and she had she has told me some very uh, unique, uh, good uh, stories about uh, her grandfather and uh, his time in uh, New Hampshire. That's one place I haven't been to, but it's on my bucket list. Uh, but yes, the uh, merchants are very um, crucial for Governor Sullivan because they are the ones that oversee all the ships coming in and out of uh, Portsmouth. The shopkeepers, you know, hey, they're the ones that have their businesses that are not far from the seaports. After all, people are not only bringing their goods to the shops, but they're coming to get goods from the shops to um, ship uh, ship out overseas. So we have seen an, an, an example of where um, there has been good in um, militia turnout to um, suppress dissidents. Unfortunately, that is not the case in Massachusetts. Did militia problems within Massachusetts catch the attention of the Continental Congress? Yes. And it shouldn't come as a surprise that uh, considering that the state militia had recently performed subpar, that is, well below the minimum uh, criteria for good performance, so it's bad enough that the state militia had recently performed subpar in suppressing the insurrection, and we're going to talk more about this in the next podcast about the uh, federal arsenal. Uh, militia uh, forces did not seize the federal arsenal, but they came close to doing it in Springfield. And the federal arsenal in Springfield is where the vast majority of munition supplies for all of New England are stored. In 1786, our nation's army, and here we are still under the fledgling Articles of Confederation, our nation's army stood at how many men? I'm going to give you all some numbers. Was it above a thousand? Or was it um, at 700? Or was the number at 500? The answer is choice B, 700 men. You know, that that's a lot of men uh, to uh, maintain um, an army in 1786. However, <laughs> depending on where any number of those men in the army could have been stationed. Remember, folks, the states are the ones running the show. <laughs> Our nation's national government, whatever it is, it's sadly, it, it's not a pretty state. It gets frowned upon. It gets scoffed at. So, for all we know, the 13 states, any one of them could say, hey, the military needs to be here, or the military doesn't need to be here, but we don't, or maybe we just don't need, want the military at all. So you have 700 men. So what does Congress do to resolve the problem? They go about adding 1,340 more soldiers. So that means that there would be an excess in all of just over 2,000 men now. Massachusetts got the majority of these men, an extra 660. 
does Congress, what does Congress do next in terms of telling the public at large why extra troops are needed? Does it have anything to do with what's going on in Massachusetts, or is it because of what could be going on in a neighboring state, or um, perhaps somewhere that is not even claimed just yet by, um, by anyone living in the current 13 states? Well, believe it or not, folks, the Continental Congress decides to um, tell the American people that the reason why additional soldiers are needed, most notably from Massachusetts, is because there is a pending Indian war in the Ohio Valley. But the story failed to sell. Many smelled a rat. In other words, they saw this as being something very fishy. It just didn't sound right. And when something's fishy, you know that there are some red flags. You know that um, someone isn't really telling the whole truth. They are trying to sell something to get you involved and not just say service to your country, but in this case, they're trying to get you involved somewhere so that um, the greater the turnout then the greater the uh, likelihood that the uh, government will be able to benefit to where um, everything else can be kept hush. But it turns out that was not the case. Even Elbridge Jerry, who signed the Declaration of Independence um, and whose family was a very prominent um, fishing family, not just a, in terms of, we're not talking like going out to fish and all that, but they were a prominent family who had a um, powerful stake in the uh, mercantile industry, rather. I, I would say that's far more appropriate in uh, the greater Marblehead community. Uh, Elbridge Jerry and others in Massachusetts viewed the matter as just being simply irrelevant. In other words, the storyline that Congress pitched just was flawed from the get-go, and if it was bad enough that people um, frowned upon what the Continental Congress tried to sell them, who would become the sharpest critic behind the the Continental Congress's decision to supply militia with additional soldiers? Your choices are the following. Was it George Washington? Was it Marquis de Lafayette? Was it um, Henry Knox, who was one of George Washington's most trusted advisors? Or was it a fellow by the name of Baron von Steuben? Well, I would say for one that, yes, George Washington would have been um, a harsh critic. However, the answer is choice D, Baron von Steuben. I'm sure most of you all probably know who he is, but for those of you who don't, now is your chance to know about him. Baron von Steuben uh, came into play uh, during the the, um, lowest of times, although there were a lot of low moments during the American Revolution for the Continental Army. But we are talking about a time in the Continental Army's existence where if the Continental Army did not survive winter, who's to say that they would even come out a lot come out of winter 
even still functioning as an army. Has anybody heard of Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, which is uh, north of uh, Philadelphia, but not too far away? Well, Baron von Steuben came to Valley Forge, and he um, he was uh, known as a Prussian drill master. Baron von Steuben uh, would have hailed from what we now know as Germany, but at that time, uh, Germany uh, was broken into a handful of... Um, a handful of different um, state nations or uh, confederations under um, under the control of um, England. After all, King George III's uh, wife, Charlotte, came from Germany, Mecklenburg. So Baron von Steuben, being the um, drill master whom trained Washington's army at Valley Forge, He knew that Massachusetts already had enough men enlisted in its militia. The number was somewhere below 100,000. That's a lot. So if you have that many, many number of men enlisted in its militia, why would, you want, why would you need more militia troops, considering that the majority of Massachusetts's militia troops supported what the dissidents were fighting for. That was to have their voices be heard from the legislature, most notably from the upper house. So if you have a majority of the state militia troops supporting the dissidents, why should you be expected to have any more men? And even if you got 660 more men, who's to say that even half of them might support the side of the um, militia in terms of putting down the rebellion? So for Baron von Steuben, he believed that smaller states like Delaware needing help from Congress was more understanding. And even a state like New Hampshire, which is north of Massachusetts. How so? Well, because Delaware didn't have the same population as, New, as uh, Massachusetts, and if Delaware was in need of help, then maybe Delaware should have gotten those 660 men versus, say, Massachusetts. So when you uh, think of Baron von Steuben going forward, uh, think of him in uh, Valley Forge. If it weren't for his, um, what do you call it, if it weren't for his leadership in uh, tactics, and that is, he installed European um, drill tactics into the um, Continental Army. Had it not been for his uh, charismatic wisdom and leadership, I'm not sure that the Continental Army might have come out as a stronger unit, not only just with discipline, but with how to go about marching, how to go about assembling, how to go about holding your rifle from shoulder to shoulder. All of those things, folks, are successful in making a soldier whom he is. Now, um, let's talk about uh, someone whom most of us had known for a long time as uh, being someone who is an ardent patriot. And I can still consider him to be an ardent patriot, but even those who are ardent patriots, their political views do change over time. Is that a good thing? Perhaps. Is it sometimes a not-so-good thing. Well, it just depends on the situation. 
So, who could we be talking about next? Who does have a uh, stake in this matter? Are we going to be talking about John Hancock? Could we be talking about Paul Revere or Samuel Adams? Let's find out. Was revolu- The answer is Samuel Adams. Was Revolutionary War statesman Samuel Adams a member of the Massachusetts State Legislature? Had his political philosophies changed since the American Revolutionary War ended? The answer to part one is yes. And as for part two, that answer is yes also. In the years after war with England ended, especially by the late 1780s, Samuel Adams vehemently opposed anyone's right to challenge state authority, and if it happened, Adams himself firmly believed those people were to be severely punished. I'll talk a little bit more about that here in a moment, but what I find so interesting is that during the conflict with England, before and once the American Revolution, um, in terms of war hostilities, broke out, Samuel Adams had become Boston's lead spokesman against British rule. But by the time the post-Revolutionary War era arrives, he has done a complete 360 in terms of uh, political views. I kind of wondered why Samuel Adams had changed so much. Well, you know, the post-Revolutionary War is not a peaceful time. And perhaps for Samuel Adams, he wants government to be sound. He wants government to probably function with as minimal conflict as there is. Well, I would think it's fair to say that all of our forefathers would have wanted government to have functioned with as minimal conflict as there was possible. But at the same time, conflict is not something that can be avoided. John Adams, Samuel's cousin, loved conflict. Thomas Jefferson, one of our great um, forefathers, was not a fan of conflict. Conflict is inevitable whether we like it or not. And our forefathers weren't immune from it, just like we aren't in today's time. But for Samuel Adams, maybe he just felt that, hey, here we are in the post-Revolutionary War era, Maybe it's best for people to just accept things for what they are. Okay, that's easier said than done. The problem, though, is that what benefits people in western Massachusetts is not the same for people in the eastern part of the state, most notably around Boston and in the greater um, in the outlying communities of uh, the state. People in western Massachusetts, most towns and villages probably back then would have been a two-day two journey to get to Boston. So, for Samuel Adams, it's probably fair to say that he really hasn't spent a whole lot of time in western Massachusetts. He hasn't really um, listened to the people's needs there. He's probably more concerned about representing the interests of the mercantile elite. Anything's possible, But, yes, Samuel Adams' political philosophies have changed. When the Massachusetts legislature reconvened, did legislative measures pass helping helping ease the existing pressures on debtors? 
I have some good news to report, folks. The answer is yes. Okay. What kind of measures came about that helped ease existing um, pressure? One measure allowed debtors up to eight months to pay a sum of money lent or invested on private debts involving land, personal property, okay? So, you know, you may not be able to pay the entire sum of your debt off, but you can pay some of it off, and that's probably better than nothing. Another measure came about that allowed debtors to ignore certain legal fees for up to two years. It's almost like being exonerated from debt, but in this case, they are extending you, um, they're giving you a clause extension to say, hey, you will be immune or you will have a grace period of two years, but after two years, then you will, you know, still have to do something about this outstanding debt. So I, I can give the legislature some credit and that they are, you know, thinking about what's best for um, most notably those in the western part of the state. Let's uh, focus our attention again on Samuel Adams. What legislative measures did Samuel Adams favor? Two I found were worth pointing out. They are the Riot and Militia Acts. The Riot Act allowed for sheriffs and other officials to be compensated along with not being held guilty for killing rioters whom failed to disperse as well as resisting capture, the rioters were to forfeit all lands and personal properties back to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. You know, this riot act right here kind of reminds me of something that some states have, like I know most notably in Florida, where it's called your stand-your-own-ground measure. So in other words, if a sheriff or any other law enforcement official during this time in 1786 felt that, honestly believed that his life was threatened, they could, you know, shoot the um, perpetrator, or a group of perpetrators, let alone, and yet they would be exonerated for not, um, for uh, killing the rioter or rioters, whom, fa in, whom in their eyes had failed to disperse. Now, don't you think it's a little bit unfair to um, say to those whom are protesting peacefully that, okay, you've got to forfeit all your lands back to the state? Well, if the activity didn't take place on my own property, then why should I be allowed to uh, forfeit that land? These issues right now, folks, that are going on, are going to be matters that will be addressed in the not-so-far-distant future. The Militia Act was geared towards militia officers like Captain Joseph Hines and Joel Billings, whom had taken up arms against the state at, when they, um, see, when they um, prevented the uh, Northampton uh, courthouse uh, from convening. Samuel Adams wanted men like Captain Hines and Billings to be executed immediately. However, thank goodness there was enough common sense on the part of the majority of the legislators whom favored giving dissidents the opportunity for repentance. In other words, allowing them to express regret, remorse for their actions. 
you know, I can understand why Samuel Adams is very um, hesitant and very leery about those who want to um, do things that are unbecoming. But remember, those who are, but those who do things in other people's eyes that may seem unbecoming are not always bad people. Again, Samuel Adams has failed to realize that the people of Western Massachusetts really aren't the problem. It's the ignorance of those in the upper house of the state legislature and perhaps ignorance on the part of Samuel Adams. Hey, Sam, don't get me wrong, folks. Samuel Adams is an ardent patriot. He must not be forgotten for his, um, for his tireless work, especially during the uh, time leading up to and when we officially declared our separation from England. But we have to remember, too, that Samuel Adams has done a complete 360. And one has to wonder, when will, when will Mr. Samuel Adams come to his senses and realize that, hey, some of his proposals might be considered one day as being unconstitutional? Had government leaders from the east from eastern Massachusetts greatly underestimated the contempt western militias displayed towards state authorities? Absolutely so. The greatest hostility rose amongst revolutionary war veterans, folks. So we're not talking just everyday people. We're not talking about people who are in the lowest ranks of society. We're talking about people who have actually fought in war whom are very hostile about what is going on, not just in Boston, but how government leaders have not valued the uh, people from the opposite side of the state. It turns out that um, in Northampton, for example, only 23 out of 637 veterans volunteered for duty, and that is they volunteered to um, to serve the state in putting down suppressions or uh, what we call rebellions. That's a very small number, so that ought to tell you right there, folks, that the um, other 614 veterans are going to be siding with dissidents. If the riot and militia acts were um, sensitive enough. The most offensive legislative measure got passed on November 10th of 1786, which gave the governor and his council supreme authority behind jailing all people whom were considered threats to the commonwealth. Hey, I, I may not have committed a crime like theft or murder, but if I challenged the government, guess what? The governor and his council could say, hey... Kirk Monroe is a threat. He said something that we don't like. So we're going to arrest him and we're going to deprive him of his fundamental rights. I, I, I would be very um, livid if that were me. Yes, I can understand some remarks about questioning one's government can be sensitive. But to me, this is a violation of free speech. And I'm sure this is another matter that's going to be addressed in the not-so-distant future either. I'm sure by now most of you are wondering, hey, what 
what's going to have to take place next to ensure that um, to ensure that uh, rebellions like what are going on in Massachusetts don't become a recurring theme, not just in that state but in other states, to where government alone may no longer considered to be functional in the in the new United States. Under this law, dissidents were denied the right of habeas corpus. And remember what habeas corpus is, folks? We talked about it in the previous podcast, but uh, habeas corpus being... Um, get to it right here. Basically being um, the, the right to... Um, the right to not be uh, held without um, without proper consent. In other words, um, it's one thing to be arrested, but to um, but to be deprived but to be uh, deprived of one's um, fundamental rights to understand why they're being arrested. Uh, that uh, to me um, is a violation of their rights. So. This is, uh, nonetheless, this is very uh, serious uh, to say, um, to say the least, uh, right here. So, um, so these dissidents, folks, whom were denied the right of habeas corpus, they were denied this up until July of 1787. Habeas corpus basically is um, the right which protects, like I said, it protects people against unlawful and permanent imprisonment. A person under arrest has the right to be brought before a judge in a court of law. I found what I was looking for. That was a good thing. Um, so yes, you know, in today's time, folks, when someone gets arrested, they have their Miranda rights read to them right away. But if they, but once they go before a judge, that person does have a right to be brought before the judge and the judge will explain to the defendant why they are um, in court and what will be expected if, say, a fine isn't paid or what to, or basically give them the opportunity to plead guilty or not guilty. These dissidents did not have the right to be able to plead guilty or not guilty, but, of course, 99.9% of them would have been pleading not guilty. Who's James Bowden? Is he someone of high um, status in the state? He's the governor. Governor Bowden issued warrants for five men, whom were all veterans of the Revolutionary War. And all five of these men were threats. But there was one man he, that he was really after. It wasn't Daniel Shays. And I know many of you all are wondering, when am, when am I going to talk next about Daniel Shays? Because I did mention about him from the previous podcast. I will tell you this much. Uh, we will be talking about him when I'm on the air again next. So um, you all can definitely breathe a sigh of relief. I'm sure some of you all are wondering why call this book Shays' Rebellion if, you're not, if you really haven't mentioned about him a whole lot. But um, as for the one man that uh, Governor James Bowden, Bowden sought out his name was Job Shatuck of Groton. Shatuck is spelled S-H-A-T-T-U-C-K. All right, what do we know about Job Shatuck? I know I'm, I have no doubts that most of you all probably don't know much about him, and that's okay. I didn't know anything about this guy until I read the book. 
but Job Shatuck was the largest landowner in Groton. He owned um, 500 acres. You know, most families in western Massachusetts, as I said um, previously, owned probably about 15 to 20 acres. And while that's not bad, we should keep in mind that there are people in the western part of the state who do own 100 acres or more. So, including um, Dr. Nehemiah Hines. Job Shatuck was the youngest of eight children. However, he benefited from something very unfamiliar that was totally unheard of in Massachusetts. Well, it was totally, it was totally unheard of pretty much everywhere else outside of Massachusetts. However, it was more common to, the Western, um, to Western Massachusetts. It was known as ultimogeniture. Now, I did tell you all briefly before about primogeniture, which was very beneficial and uh, prevalent in uh, Virginia up until the time Thomas Jefferson became governor in 1779. Of course, Thomas Jefferson benefited from primogeniture. Basically, it's the practice where the eldest-born um, male child in, um, in the aristocratic society of Virginia would be um, the sole inheritor or the prime inheritor uh, to um, his family's uh, landed estate. Whereas primogeniture has to do with the eldest born um, male son inheriting the family estate, ultimogeniture is where the youngest son inherited the parent's estate. And what do you know? Job Shatuck had that um, unique uh, honor of inheriting his parent's estate, considering that he was the youngest. Does Job Shatuck have any uh, military experience? Yes, he served as longtime captain of the local militia, along with serving in the French and Indian War, as well as the American Revolutionary War. Had Governor James Bowden viewed Job Shatuck as a threat for some time? In other words, had Job Shatuck been a threat to Governor Bowden for more than a year? Yes. Shatuck himself had been stirring trouble since October of 1781, five years earlier. October 1781, most notably on the 19th. Of course, that was the day that the British surrendered at Yorktown. So, Governor Bowden has seen Job Shatuck as a threat even around the time um, that the American Revolutionary War itself was ending in terms of the British surrender at Yorktown. What kind of things had uh, Job Shatuck been doing to, what do you call it, um, irk uh, Governor Bowden? Well, when he was serving as selectman, he had voiced opposition to the new state government as well as its tax policies. He probably voiced opposition to the state's new constitution, which had been in effect since 1780. But from 1781 to 1783, on multiple instances, Job Shatuck fought hard to keep tax collectors from collecting revenue in the form of silver money. Well, you know, very few people have can afford to pay their debts with hard currency. One of the big uh, complaints that the Westerners in Massachusetts have is that they is that in order for them to be um, consistent with paying debts, they need paper money. Of course, yes, paper money doesn't have the same value as hard currency, 
but not everybody has access to such fine luxuries like fine silver. So Job Shatuck um, goes about um, mobilizing mob crowds to fight off the collectors, and he did this more than once. And in September of 1786, Job led the uprising that halted the conquered court from meeting. Okay, folks, so he, this wasn't confined. He wasn't a Westerner. Well, although, yes, he was a Westerner in uh, Groton, but he um, was very instrumental with um, helping close the uh, courthouse uh, just north of Boston in Concord. What happened to Job, Shatuck, and other men from Groton on November 30th of 1786? They were arrested by a handful of light horsemen whom ultimately got sent. These uh, light horsemen forced Shatuck and the other prisoners to be imprisoned 40 miles away to Boston where they were jailed for an unreasonable time period from the remainder of 1786 to the summer of 1787. That to me is a direct violation of uh, habeas corpus right there, folks. I mean... Think about it. You are sending these men to um, far away, but yet they have they are being deprived of the opportunity to be brought before a judge in a court of law. It makes no sense whatsoever. They have a right to voice their um, opposition, and yes, it may not be right to resorted to using a mob to fight off the collectors, kind of like the same way how. It, um, how it was done years earlier when, uh, when, the, uh, when the British under General Thomas Gage brought forces into Boston, or uh, before Gage's arrival, and customs collectors were continue, had been continuously harassed. Although those were different matters, um, but at the same time, you know, we, the Westerners have already gone above and beyond and, and issued petitions. They've addressed grievances at the conventions. Yes, mob protests may not be right, but when you get to a point where your voices aren't being heard, I think it's fair to say that the opposition will do anything to make matters worse for, for the um, oppressors. In other words, those who are um, suppressing the rights of the minority, suppressing the rights uh, to those whom they feel just aren't worthy of having equal say in government. The deprivation of habeas corpus, including prison confinement, did lead to about just over 30 towns protesting the state's actions. Well, there you have it, folks. Over 30 towns protesting these actions. The governor's actions, in their eyes, was equivalent to British tyranny, or let alone absolute monarch. Tyranny, folks, harsh rule absolute monarch where the king himself has all powers and if anybody questions those powers in his eyes those dissidents not only could be jailed they could be um, put to death but you know what I find um, something that I did not mention and I should have done it with regards to the uh, riot and militia acts you know the militia act especially you know Samuel Adams wanted those who took up arms against the state to be executed immediately. It kind of reminds me to some degree of what Parliament did in 1774 when they passed those uh, coercive acts 
that pretty much closed, not only closed the port of Boston down, but um, how about um, trying uh, people who committed offenses in the colonies instead to have their trials be sent overseas? Do you think any of those people, had they committed crimes in their own colonies and all of a sudden got sent over to England to be tried for their offenses, do you think they would have had the right to have had proper representation? No. Do you think they might have even had the right to go before a judge in England? Perhaps not. So, you know, Samuel Adams, as I said before, I say it again, yes, he is a very brilliant um, statesman, but during this time... This is probably one of his um, low points in terms of uh, not demonstrating the same level of patriotism that he had expressed years earlier, or displayed for that matter. Did hardliners, a.k.a. the governing elite, want legislature to declare state of rebellion as well as imposing martial law on the western counties? Yes, they did. However, the legislature once again was smart enough to realize that these proposals by the hardliners were unjust and so unjust to where even the legislature felt it was very unnecessary to go to such extremes. So thank goodness that the legislature, while yes, it may not be 100% unison, that is, not everyone may be in agreement, but at least there's enough people who have common sense to know that, hey, you know, people who are being impacted in the western counties, they shouldn't be submitted to um, jail if they haven't done anything to um, put not only themselves in danger, but that of their community or the state, let alone. What happened in late December of 1786, which caught Governor Bowden and his council by surprise? Well, let me, let me, guys, let me ask you all this. Was it another uh, courthouse that got closed? Uh, the answer is yes. 300 insurgents marched on, the, marched on Springfield and forced Springfield, Springfield's courthouse to close. The insurgents, however, came from towns miles away, towns on each side of the Connecticut River, like Pelham to West Springfield. There are two possible explanations for how this could have happened. We, the local sheriff originally admitted that he did not know about any knowledge of rebel activity. However, it could be possible that perhaps this local sheriff had lied. In other words, he claimed to have said that he didn't know anything about it, but for all we know, he could have. Could this local sheriff be a secret detractor? In other words, could he be a a secret defector and be um, hiding um, his uh, loyalties? We, We ought to find that out, and hopefully we'll find that out when I'm on the air again next. The other uh, possible explanation could be this. Government without friends in Hampshire County. What does that mean? Well, there is government, obviously, in the state of Massachusetts. But just because there's government in Massachusetts, it doesn't mean that everyone's happy with how government is functioning. Government in Hampshire County, folks, 
is not is not um, peaceful. It's not uh, it's not um, maintaining any consistency. Government in Hampshire County is just um, one of many western um, western um, counties or uh, let alone western towns whom are feeling the um, stings upon um, upon the uh, Easterners, most notably those running the show in Boston. But government without friends is definitely a, um, a possible explanation behind why uh, the, the uh, Springfield Courthouse was closed. Hampshire County's... Um, well, we, in today's time, it's the county seat. I, I don't know if it was um, in 1786, but Amherst was the um, is the uh, county seat of um, Hampshire County. So uh, we've covered a lot of ground, folks. We've probably I know for a fact we've learned some information that many of you all probably would not have uh, anticipated, especially knowing where Samuel Adams's political views are compared to what they were um, 16 years earlier and that is before and once shots were heard around the world so we can say that we uh he did a 360 all right we've also learned about how governor bowden and the council view anyone who who voices their opposition at the state is an automatic threat we have learned that uh, not everyone has fundamental rights you know, yes, people do have rights, but if you are loyal to the state and you don't create a scene, you do as you're told, then yes, your rights won't be taken from you. But if you rebel, if you question things left and right, and if you uh, engage in mob activity, then you are automatically a threat. So we're at a time right now, folks, in the post-revolutionary war era where we are really struggling to find out what truly constitutes fundamental rights. I thought we kind of uh, established that when our forefathers came together to sign the Declaration of Independence, but at the same time, that was men coming from all 13 colonies. The, the bigger problem here is that we've got 13 states who at times can be unanimous with one another, that is, they can agree on things, but yet 13 states, 13 separate entities... Okay, one state has one set of fundamental rights. Another state may not even come close to having an exact set of fundamental rights. So we've still got a lot of sorting out to do. And when I'm on the air again next, we're going to talk more about, um, we're going to talk more about Daniel Shays. We're going to get to know him a little bit more, although uh, we did learn um, some 101 fundamentals uh, from the last time I was on uh, the air. But the next time I'm on, uh, we're going to discuss what's called crackdown. Well, folks, uh, thank you for listening as always. I look forward to being back on the air again soon. Take care for now and stay safe.